Welcome back, everyone, to the Yacht Rock Podcast out of the main. I am your co-host, John. I'm your co-host, Tom. Yes, I, You're the co-host, John. I am. What up? I am. I'm the, not the not Tom. I'm John. Okay. Well, we're going to jump right into it today Let's do because it. we have a guest that uh, I know is going to give us tons of content. So why delay? Uh, bringing in 12-time Grammy-nominated, two-time Grammy-winning, maybe one of the most versatile professionals in all of musicdom and certainly for sure in Yacht Rock. None other than Jay Graydon. Jay, welcome to the show. My pleasure, guys. And by the way, to get things going, I actually won a third Grammy. And here's the story. Ooh, oh. But I blew it. Here's what happened. When I was recording the Manhattan Transfer album that has Birdland on it, Janice came up to me one day and said, I don't, you know, she was working off the Zawanu version and she couldn't hear the voicings in the section. And she said, what are those chord voicings? I said, they're 13 flat nine chords and here's how it looks, but here's how you're gonna wanna voice it for the singers. So I showed her and I wrote it out. And then a day later, she came back to me and she says, Jay, I can't figure out what voices these are in this section. And I said, they're major seven flat five chords and this is what they look like. And for the singers, here's how I'd voice it. And I wrote it out. Then the next day, same thing, another section. And I did the work for her. And she came up to me at the end of the project and said, do you want a ranging credit? And I'm thinking, I didn't, I wasn't thinking. And I said, no, it was a dumb mm. move, stupid move. And here's why. Because in the category of best vocals for a duo or group, Twilight Tone, Twilight Zone was up, and so was Birdland. Well, I thought they'd cancel each other out because some fans would vote for one and some would vote for the other. And, you know, of course, I wrote and arranged um, Bird, um, Twilight Tone, Twilight Zone with Alan. Yeah. Group. And anyway, Birdland won. And I said, man, I blew it, man. Birdland! So now we go to six months ago and Janice calls me up and said, I've got this podcast or this streaming thing I do, whatever, whatever she's got, chicken gumbo, something like that, or gumbo. And, you know, one of the guys from Take Six, Mark's involved and an, another couple of singers. Anyway, she said, will you play the guitar parts on Morning for me? We're going to do that. And I said, sure, I'll do it. And I said, Janice, while we're at it, I've been meaning to call you for about 39 years. <laughs> Can you write a letter to Norris and tell them that I made a mistake and that I actually am co-arranger? And she said, absolutely. So she did. We got the letter back and it said, well, if you would have applied in the first year, it would have been cool, but not 40 years later. Well, of course, I'm thinking, what's the difference when this went down? You know, Janice was the winner and I was, I co-arranged it with her. So anyway, it's actually a better joke if I say I've got two and a half Grammys and two and a half nominations. <laughs> Statute of limitations ran out. Yeah. Can you believe that? I mean, the audio, yeah. the audio hasn't changed. 
No. Whatever. Right. I mean, you know, that's where it goes. So. Well, for our purposes, then, it's 13-time Grammy-nominated, yeah. three-time winner. That's right. Cool. Good math. Yeah. Well, before we spend too much time in the Wayback Machine, Jay, we know you're uh, still very busy. You've got, I think, two books coming out, one an autobiography. You've got a new YouTube channel. We've got stuff that we want to talk about with the E-Roads and your work you've done in recent years. But what's keeping you busy as this stays? What are you, what are you really excited about? Okay. Not only one book but it looks like it's going to turn the first book looks like it's going to be for guitar and the second book is going to be keyboards and then a drum book and then a bass book i'm doing the books with chairston olson who's my pa that you guys know both Mm -hmm. of her sons are excellent musicians stefan's a keyboard player and peppy's a drummer and they're helping me on this because i haven't learned a notation program and also, I just wanted them to push me and get me in, involved big time with wanting to do this. So every Saturday night for about Saturday night for me, well, actually Sunday morning, we start at like 4 a.m. Uh, L.A. time. That's like 11 for them or noon, something like that. So um, the first thing that I did and the reason I started this is I've got a brand new chord system. The way chords are written out, and after playing who knows how many thousands of record dates, I've seen things written out in every possible way you know, imaginable. And the problem is the voicing order is not written out. So I devised this system. So when you read the, it's similar to what you see, but all the chord changes are lined up with the lowest extension first. So each extension thereafter goes higher than the previous extension. This way, you know exactly what I want you to play or what they will want their musicians to play. So that's where it started. But then I got an idea. I started writing out rhythm guitar parts that I've played over the years on albums. And I would hear rhythm guitar parts on records and kind of twist and turn them around a bit. So I had about 80 or 100 of those, and I had Pepe write them out. And then Stefan said, you know, I can do a program where we can get, we can randomize like millions of patterns. So I gave him the guidelines on how we should do it. And we're going to write out, well, print out a thousand rhythm guitar parts. And every week we go through them and I play like 50 or more and we decide what's good and what's not good. And already I've discovered great rhythm guitar parts. Now, not only are they going to be written out, I'm going to do a video too. Now, this is like a dictionary or an encyclopedia. So it's like an encyclopedia for anyone that wants to play rhythm guitar on a session or in their band and they're hung up playing their own regular stuff. When they go through this stuff and learn all these new patterns, they're going to have a library that's giant. So I think it's going to really change the way pop records are made. So the book and the YouTube channel are companion pieces? The book, 
the YouTube channel is different. I, yeah, the YouTube, uh, the YouTube channel is, and by the way, there's a lot more in the guitar book other than that. The, the YouTube channel is like an educational channel and it's going to start mostly with engineering because so many young engineers don't really know what they're doing. And <clears throat> if they become good engineers, they're going to need to know how to work with analog consoles. Plus, something that so many engineers don't realize is the importance of phase. The rising waveform at the beginning of the attack pushes air forward through the monitor speakers. And if it's inverted, <clears throat> it sucks the air backwards. And I found this out by accident when I was mixing a Manhattan transfer record. And we had just installed the new Ampex ATR-102 and we pulled the transformers because we wanted to get them out of the circuit for more punch. Well, on the first mix, I always play back through the console, but mostly through the tape machine because the electronic path is gonna go through the tape machine and dull it up a little bit. So when I was listening through the machine, I noticed that the bottom end was dropping off. It was like not punchy. It was just less of it. So I called my studio tech and I said, Phil, get over here. Tell me what's wrong. He says, nothing's wrong. I'm listening to it, uh, to it and I can't hear a difference. <laughs> well, I've been blessed with golden ears as told to me by, by Marcus Ryle and all other kinds of guys. When they can't hear these nuances, I can hear. And it's a gift and you think anybody else should be able to hear it too, right? So anyway, I said, Phil, pull out your scope, find out what's wrong. So when we pulled the transformers, we didn't realize that it inverted the phase. So the phase of the low end in the mix was coming back inverted, sucking the air away from forward, meaning backwards. So it's less of an impact for the bass, way less, not way noticeable. So I'm going to teach all about phase and how important it is with everything, especially low frequency stuff. And when I get into the drum stuff, it's going to get crazy. But I'm going to take my time and explain it and show it and also play audio examples. That's just one of hundreds of things mm -hmm. that I need to teach because <clears throat> I've gathered all this knowledge over the years. I've been into engineering since I was a little kid and into electronics. And I've come up with so many tricks over the years out of necessity. So I'm going to teach all of that stuff. Well, clearly this goes into way beyond beginner stuff, you know? So, I mean, cause I'm an engineer myself and I probably know 20% of what I should. So I will definitely be on that, uh, on that stream. Yeah. The very first thing I'm going to start with, everybody needs to know. And when you see this go down and hear it, you're going to go, why didn't I think of that? Well, that's what I mean. Yeah, exactly. And this yeah. is what I do. I mean, yeah. if, I, if I just stopped and looked around this room for a half an hour and started thinking about possibilities, I'd come up with all kinds of stuff to try that I haven't ever tried before. The reason I have not done that when I'm working is I'm thinking about working. I learned to do this when I'm not working. Mm -hmm. Do you realize that you can get audio in the future 
before the audio playback you're listening to when you're listening to a tape recorder playback. From the bleed through and when the tape is wound, you mean? Nope. Or nope. what do you mean? Okay. I was looking at the tape machine one day and I realized the sync head is used for record, right? right. But mm-hmm. it's also a playback head when you're overdubbing, right? Mm-hmm. That's You right, understand right. Yeah. that, right? I do, yeah. Line yep. it up. The only way you can line up the playback with what you're recording is if the record head is a playback head on tracks you're not recording on. Right. Well, I said, there's, I thought, well, there's sync cards in the machine. It's got to be putting out sync output while it's putting out the playback output because it's a whole other set of amplification cards. So I told my tech to wire a few tracks off the sync card and that I could patch into the patch bay. And damn, I was right. <laughs> you in the future. Now, what was the reason for doing this in the very beginning? The reason was when you gate something like a kick drum or a snare drum to get rid of the leakage when you're in analog land, you know, you don't want the leakage. You just want the snare to open up when it hits but it can't see in the future when it's just listening to the source material. Yeah, so it misses that attack. It misses the attack. It right. gets half it only really opens at the attack. You don't get the full the full sound of the kick or right. the snare. So I measured the delay time at 30 IPS by using a digital delay line and throwing the audio out of phase on the sync track. So when I set the delay line to the exact point where the signal would totally cancel out, I looked at the delay time and it was 61.3 milliseconds on my MCI 24 tracks. So then I backed it up five seconds. I did this with the kick drum and I ran the audio from the sync head delayed 58 or 56 something millisecond to trigger the gate to open it just before the kick hits. A few milliseconds early. Yeah. yeah. I tweaked it until I found the exact right spot. And then that was that. And forever I did that with the kick and the snare. Now, sometimes you'd have to ride the level of the sink head uh, gain because if the, if the kicks played light or the snares play light, you know, but I just have to do it when I was mixing, just another task. You know, Whew. yeah. And now they just have look ahead button on the plugins. Yeah, yeah. I mean, now this is not. <laughs> I know. Now you just hand draw out the audio and your engineering stuff. Your 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 the the YouTube thing. Would you be like talking both? This is how we did it then because of like this story, and then talk to bring it into the modern Pro Tools equivalent world. Absolutely. Yeah. Okay. The best thing about Pro Tools versus other DAWs is Pro Tools looks more like an analog console um, inputs. Mm -hmm. It just looks more like an analog console. And there'll only be a few young engineers over the years that'll get great and end up in big studios with analog consoles, but they're going to know how to use use them. And even some of the guys on their way up may be in that situation. They're going to need to know how to use it. And it's way more intimidating the way it looks as to how you use it. 
And when I clear that up, that'll be big. A recording console mm. is nothing but a big stereo. And you have control over the individual tracks. You know, mm. instead of a stereo yeah. that controls the level for the stereo mix and the tone controls, all the console is is repetitive modules that do that for individual tracks. So right, it right. shouldn't be intimidating at all. Well, I think we're getting a little glimpse into the the mind of Jay Graydon as mad scientist and, and tinkerer. Um, it, uh, but I wanted to sh uh, have you share a story that maybe is a little less technical in nature, but uh, and it's about a guitar solo that you did. Uh, probably not the one that you think we're going to ask no. about. But we had uh, Mark Jordan on the show, and he told us a story about the recording of the Twilight guitar solo. And he says that you had him stand behind him and on the neck voice a chord and just hold that down while you were soloing over the top of it to create new voicings. Is that right? Kind of right. I had him hold down a note that I couldn't reach that I wanted to play in the solo. And <clears throat> yeah, I had him stand behind me and I, I, <clears throat> I told him when to, when to do it. So I said, you know, I, well, he's a musician. So yeah. after a couple <laughs> of passes, it was just in one section. So I taught it to him and then um, it was cool to work. <laughs> There's another one of the mad things I come up with. So did Mark get um, guitar credits on that song? <laughs> I should have gave him the finger credit. Yeah, they're right. Single finger. Right. Uh, he had, um, he, he, you know, he had a lot of nice things to say about you. I got to say, he, the first thing he said was, you know, Jay's a genius. <laughs> but uh, he said that, um, going back to your technical side, he said that your ears were so good that you would audition gear particularly he mentioned the lynn 9000 maybe he meant the lynn drummer lm1 but he said that you would you would audition those like they were people because you could hear the difference from one to another true or false absolutely no doubt wow. about it i mean we're dealing with components in these things that are going to like the capacitors maybe be maybe they're only 20 percent accurate in in, in in the audio path in some places you know they have a tolerance of you know, from like hardly anything up to maybe 20%. Well, you want to make the instrument cheaper and you got a thousand capacitors, capacitors in it, you're going to cheap out with some of them. So I just, knowing that, I would compare the machines and I would record them side by side, like a couple bars each of the same MIDI, MIDI pattern on different tracks. So I could immediately tell, you know, and I do the same thing with guitar amps. One time, we had, um, I told Valley Arts Guitar that um, to order as many deluxes as they think they could sell, Fender Deluxe Reverbs. We had 23 of them lined up. And I stood about 10 feet back and Paul Rivera kept plugging in different amps. And after we went through one pass, we eliminated about half of them. And then we finally got down to three that were the best. And then Paul took them upstairs and did his mods on them. I mean, you know, I do this with everything I can. I wow. still do this. Well, didn't 
Jay, didn't um, John? You're going to have to refresh my memory because okay. we also had Bill Schnee on as a guest, yeah. and either he or Mark Jordan or both said that you got to ask Jay if you ever get him on about the E roads because that, the E roads is very famous in yacht rock circles um, for all the obvious reasons. But for people who aren't intimately familiar, there was one or two E roads like for you. You one had a specific baby. one. One specific E-Road that was, a, and you would lend it out and you would have to get it back to do sessions. So walk us through this whole E-Roads thing from back then, and then we'll talk about what you're doing with the E-Roads today. Okay. This is a great story. It starts with Foster calling me up after a session. He gets home. It was probably something he was producing because this was like in the early 80s when we were both producing full time. He called me up and he said, I just played the best roads I've ever heard ever. Not even a close second. I said, well, the Giro sessions for the Giro album, the self-entitled album, I said, that's coming up in a week and change. And David and I and Al wrote a bunch of tunes for that record. Man, that's my, I think that's my favorite Giro record. Anyway, um, it's got morning on it. It's got a, a tune, yeah. Save Me, in the beginning of Save Me with David playing the E-Roads. That really shows the beauty of it. In any case, I rented the E. I didn't own it. Leeds Instruments owned it. I got to preface this with something. I asked Leeds, okay, well, first of all, as soon as I heard the roads that day when I was EQing it and putting, setting the levels and EQing it, I hit the talk back button within 30 seconds and I said, David, you were right, man. This is unreal, this instrument. So anyway, I asked Andy Leeds, how did you find this? He said, I went to Wallach's Music City and I went back in the storeroom with the salesman because I just wanted to see what was back there. And it was obvious that inventory there was not a priority because they had stuff stacked up from the floor to the ceiling all over the place. And on the bottom of one pile was this big box. And Leeds says, what's that? So they took all the stuff out off of it they pulled it out, and it was what turned into the Fender E that had sat there new for nine years in the box. <laughs> Whoa. Wow. Whoa. So Leeds bought it. He always stenciled his roads with letters, not numbers. And the, the session Foster played it on had to be one of the first sessions it showed up on. So at that point... I, everybody that came into my room to play on sessions for me that was a keyboard player, I told them, I said, you're not going to believe this Rhodes. I wouldn't do the session without the Rhodes. So everybody was freaked out. Greg Matheson, Robbie Buchanan, oh man, name it, Omardian, all of them. And so I told everybody too. I mean, I called all my friends that were producers and arrangers and I said, you got to get this Rhodes. What I didn't realize was there came a point six months later where I couldn't book the roads for two months. It was all booked up. <laughs> I had to book the roads, then book the musicians two months in advance. <laughs> oh my God. So that's crazy. I'm glad to help my friends out. But anyway, <laughs> that's what happened. Now, yeah. there's people. Now, Eddie, Eddie Reynolds was a guy that worked for Andy Leeds. And he used to tune Leeds instruments that needed tuning, like Rhodes and Clavinets. So he'd go to the sessions wherever the instruments were, free and get there an hour early and tune them. 
but he was also a bright guy electronically and he did some mods mm -hmm. and I didn't realize it at the time, but it was more of a mechanical thing he did with the E because the electronic mods, when just before we sampled, I have the, had the new owner, George Mamalakis, great piano player, by the way, great cat and brilliant. And he brought the E over and we tried all of Eddie's mods. We tried every combination we could think of. And I'm listening in the control room, going back and forth, turning things on and off. And we realized we didn't want any of those mods turned on that were switchable. So I had Eddie do my roads for me at one point, and it didn't really get much better. And it was nothing like the E. And I basically gave it to Marcus Ryle recently because it's just no use for it now that we've got these <laughs> samples. So, okay, that takes us up to the point where I found George or he found me maybe 25 or 30 years ago. I had wondered what happened to the E and here's how he ended up with it. The Yamaha DX7 came out and everybody <laughs> was using two of them as roads, detuning each one minus three, detuning the one on the left minus three cents, detuning the one that would be panned right plus three cents. And it was the roads that was on all the records, probably from 86 on or 85 on. I'm not sure. You guys probably know. But um, then the E and all of Lee's other roads were all gathering dust. Nobody was using them. So George is like a very um, dedicated cat. When he wants something, he's going to get it. So he called Leeds and went down there and played it. And of course, you know, he knew, knew about it and loved it. And he talked Leeds into selling it. He gave, offered him a price Leeds couldn't refuse. And George has ended up with the roads ever since. And he was smart enough to not take it to gigs. He only took it to about three gigs so it didn't get banged up. Mm -hmm. And he learned how to take it apart mechanically and put it back together. And he just maintained it incredibly well. So I said, George, when memory gets cheap enough, we're going to sample this. And I said, mm -hmm. now you're in Santa Barbara, so I'm going to let you do the sampling, but I'm going to write out everything that needs to be done because I've done a lot of sampling. And I said, unlike the Keyscapes Road in which Eric said, it's completely... Um, uh, vintage. We didn't change anything. Now, see, that's wrong. It When it was new, it would have a lot more punch because as capacitors age and other parts age, they lose punch. So we found a good tech in Santa Barbara to replace all the capacitors, but to play it safe so we didn't screw anything up. We, I had George write out the schematic on a five-foot-by-five-foot five piece of cardboard. So every time we pulled out a capacitor to swap a new one in, George would record it first. We'd swap out the cap. He'd swap out the cap and tape it onto this giant five-foot schematic cardboard so we knew where that capacitor came from. If then would re back. George would record it. <laughs> And if there wasn't any negative sound change, the new part stays in. Well, ironically, all the new parts stayed in. It got better sounding. It got brighter and more alive like it was new. Because 
ambassadors have a life of maybe 15 years. In some cases, less. It's heat and age is what destroys capacitors. Then I found the weirdest bug of all time. And I won't bother explaining it. I'll, I'll run this down on the YouTube channel because it's just so, it's such an oddball thing. And um, yeah, and it's a little technical. So <laughs> I don't want to bore you guys with it. So anyway, we got the roads ready to sample. And I sent George, no kidding, about 100 pages of how to deal with this properly. And I said, George, you're good with mechanical things. You need to build something that strikes the keys. Mm -hmm. Nothing you can adjust so it'll always hit it at the same amount of weight. And he nailed it on the first pass. He calls it Vera. And maybe someday he'll show it on YouTube and show how he designed it and all that. Yeah, I'd like to see that. Well, yeah. we're going to have to ask George if he'll do it. I think he should. Because it's not like he's going to use it again. And if somebody wants to build it, it's a lot of work. But even for people that sample pianos, because I've noticed there's a great inconsistency of some great sounding pianos, but the keys, it's clearly sampled, not mechanically, but by a person hitting a key because it's inconsistent. That's not good. So that's why, yeah. that's why I came up with this. So anyway, then I gave him the whole rap about how to sample and blah, blah, blah. And we discovered there was 18 different sounds of hitting the key. And we sampled 18 samples of where the sound changes. The timbre just changes enough to be noticeable. So 18 samples for every note. This took George a long time. By comparison, most are what, like eight layers, eight to 12 maybe? I, you know, I actually don't know. I think Keyscapes has five layers, but I might be wrong. Okay. I don't know. Yeah, um, either way, 18 is a lot by comparison. Right. That's why we would have done more. I actually almost made that happen. But anyway, we, but I got scared because that was nine gigabyte. Yeah. But what we didn't realize is when we made a deal with Orange Samples, which is another story and a great place for us to end up, what happens is Contact does, has the so-called lossless format where it chops the, the size of the samples to one-third. So instead of nine gigabyte, it's three gigabyte. And we compared it with the nine gigabyte samples, flipped one of them out of phase, and it canceled out completely. Perfect. So whatever they're doing, there was no artifact left out. So, you know, um, then um, another issue came up. When you sample one note at a time, you're running through the preamp of the of the E every time. So if you play 10 notes in a chord, yeah. you're getting 10 times the noise you'd get from the preamp. Okay? Now, right. we recorded it as hot as we could without clipping, but the lower notes, we didn't bring up the level. We had to make it uniform. So I knew that would be a problem if we did, you know, we did the right thing by doing this. But anyway, some guy complained, but the way he complained and measured was just absolutely hysterical. It was all wrong. But Greg, who owns Orange Tree Samples, Greg Schleffer, another excellent piano player, and he's got perfect pitch, so I hate him for that. <laughs> and, you know, if you know anything about Orange Tree Samples, they're great. I do. Yep, I got like four or five of their products. He's yeah. great. It's all Greg. Mm-hmm. 
Sometimes he doesn't play the guitars, but he's brilliant, man. And a nice guy, man. So um, he denoised the samples. So the sample floor, the noise floor is minus 80 dB. He did it in RX spectral without affecting the tone at all because he's a genius. He explained to me how he did it, and I go, wow, I would have never yeah. thought of that. So it's quiet. You know, you play, uh, next time you play it, yeah. play it, check, you know, let it sustain out all the way and just listen. You're not going to hear any noise. I was telling Jay before we even got started, I, you know, I use a lot of virtual instruments by the nature of what I do. And I've played a bunch of different roads because my whole like West Coast project was built around the concept of the roads as the centerpiece. And I was talking to Stefan Olison about this. And when this came out, it was such a game changer. I went back and had about five or six of the songs from the album mixed. Had to go back and swap out to put in the, the because it is it's just so alive. It's more alive sounding instrument than any of the VSTs I've ever played of any instrument, drums, bass, guitar, any of them. This is the, the preeminent one I've ever touched. There's a guy named Jim something, I think, who is an excellent player. Somebody sent me a link to his, his YouTube channel, and he's showing off. He's, he's got a great touch, and he plays real quiet a lot, and he was really showing off the dynamics of the instrument. And with this guy's really good. And it just blew my mind that it's somebody with that kind of finesse. I really got to hear what the E actually can do. I'm a banger, man. You know, same. <laughs> but it's got that bark when you hit it hard. It's got that bark that a real Rhodes had that none of the other sampled ones were able to achieve. Well, that's because so. we sampled up um, yeah. velocities. Like I told you, cats, I don't particularly like the bell notes. Um, the Mark One E had nine different harder hammers from the B above middle C for nine notes in a row. And then it went back to the regular hammers. So we have a switch where you can have the bells on or off. Mm -hmm. I leave them off. I'm I, an all on. Yeah. <laughs> I have them on. That's why the switch is there. Yeah, it's cool. I want everybody to have all the possibilities they want. What... You know, if anybody has ideas that we didn't include in the E, tell us and we'll put it in. Well, let's uh, take a quick break. Yep. I need to come up with my wish list for what I want in the E roads. Uh, <laughs> although I can't imagine there's anything missing. I've already got it. I love it as it is. But yeah. Well, with his attention to detail, can you imagine that there's something that could be missing? Mm. No, but, you know, when people start using something, they find all the things that are wrong with it that you could never imagine as a designer. So, you know, beta testers. Well, I love the story of the E-Roads. I also think, uh, like I said, it's a glimpse into the mind, the detail-oriented mind and ear of Jay Graydon. Is, God, for sure, it's a blessing. I wonder if it ever is a curse that you just – you're so detailed. You can't get – and you kind of see the way he explains yeah. things in granular level of specificity some of it's over my head we also talked like if he when he looks around his studio if he you know if he didn't compartmentalize that and say i'm not going to deal with the what ifs of all of that gear while i'm working and then at other times he just kind of gets into that mode but there was a lot of very technical stuff we understand you know some of it um and the conversation goes on for future episodes and it's not going to be all the technical stuff, we are going to get into the music producer side of things, but uh, there was a couple of things in there that I thought maybe I would benefit from a quick explanation. 
I so, could benefit from it. So shoot. The one thing he was talking about uh, the guitar books and the the, the um, stuff he was putting out, and he was talking about showing people he developed a whole new system for writing out chords. And the reason he developed this new system was because he wanted people to know the voicing that he wanted. And the voicing means the order of notes from the bottom up. And you want them, if you're really into that as a jazzy guy, the order of the notes from the bottom up matter. Mm-hmm. And that's what inversions mean. So if he has a specific voicing that he wants a specific note on top because maybe it relates to the melody or something like that, he wants a system that tells the player not just what the chord is, but also the order from the bottom up that he wants the notes to be played. So that's what that was about. Okay. Interesting. Um, well, what else? Is there anything else you can decipher for the uh, weekend warrior <laughs> like myself who can't even read music? He was talking about audio from the future, right? Oh, yeah. And, yeah. Uh, that was a really what there's, there's the basic physics of the old tape machines. And as the tape is winding past the record and playback area, there's heads. And the heads will either do the recording or do the playback. And because we're talking a physical thing, they can't all sit in the same physical place. So if you were playing something and listening to the playback head, but trying to record onto the record head, which are in two different places, you're going to be out of sync. Mm -hmm. So they designed it so that you could actually listen off the record head while you're recording. That puts you in line. But in Jay's mind, he's thinking, okay, you have a switch on a tape machine that says, which head am I going to listen to? But he's like, why can't I hear from both at the same time? So that was why he had his guy ah. uh, wire out directly from the two different heads so that he could have both of them available. So now the, the audio is happening at two different time spots as hmm. he designed it about 60 milliseconds apart. But that allowed him to use that, what he called future audio, to send that into some of his electronic devices early so hmm. that he could then you know, open up his gates or his compressors exactly like he wanted. But that's because of the physical nature of tape passing by heads and there's space between them. So he was just doing a workaround. Yeah. Interesting. Well, like I said, man, scientist. Yes. And we should probably note um, for the record that we were able to talk to Jay from the time we got on the Zoom to the time we hung up was close to two hours. Yeah. So um, not all of that was chatting specifically officially for the podcast episode, but we, we're going to need to break this into three episodes. Right. Because once Jay gets going on a story, he tells it in detail, and the next two installments, I think, are probably heavier on the storytelling and less so on the the technical side. Would you agree? Yeah. Uh, You like to place things in the culture of the 70s and 80s, the cultural impact, and we haven't had a trilogy yet, you know, the Star Wars trilogy and things. So we've got our trilogy, right? Yes, we do. Yes, we do. Our three-act play, if you will. But we're going to move him into talking about some of the production area he did and some of the songwriting, some of the legendary songs and things that he worked on. So uh, it is funny. He does keep migrating back to the technical side. Yeah. But I think that's part of where he is now, that that is what he feels he can offer more so than a 70-plus-year-old producer that our, our young guy's going to want that. But the technical side is still important. Well, we'll keep everyone posted when we hear that uh, the YouTube channel's live and the books are out and all that stuff. So, right. well, should we put a pin in that and then we'll come back to our conversation with Jay next week and move on to a lightning round? Yes. Let's do it. All right. I, I feel like I have to go first since a week I ago, know. 
you stole my buried treasure. Right. I'm going to try and steal something else this week. I don't know how, but I will. It was After All by El Jarreau, which he recorded. That would have been a perfect one, but you stole it. So I'm going to go first in Does This Float Your Boat? Um, I was going back and listening to the uh, Manhattan transfer work that Jay Mm -hmm. did. Mm -hmm. So on the album Mecca for Moderns in 1981 is one of their biggest hits, Manhattan Transfers. But I never really considered it Yachty. But now that I'm looking everything through the prism of, well, it's got Jay Graydon. And let me listen again to the recording production. Hmm. Yeah. Uh-huh. I just don't know. Did you ever consider Boy from New York City as Yachty? No, that would be one of the few actually from that era that I don't, probably because it was such an homage maybe back to the 60s bubblegum era thing. And then mm-hmm. they kept it fairly true to that. But uh, that was a pretty big hit for them. But it was. I don't find it remotely Yachty. Yeah. The only thing they had me second guessing, because I was never thought it was Yachty and still don't, but I was like, well, listen to the way that keyboard part bops back and forth. Maybe that's an element, but I'm a no on that one. Um. Although I like the song more now than I ever did in the past. Good. I wasn't a big fan Good. of like the uh, let's harken back to the 40s sort of, uh, you know, swing pop vocal yeah. thing, whatever. There but, is a uh, schmaltzy side to them, too. Yeah. I mean, there's a mm-hmm. few in there that are just kind of oddball songs. But I kind of take that as part of the the whole package. I'm good with yep. it. What do you got for uh, floating your boat? Well, my float your boat isn't exactly asking you if it's float your boat. I had to try and squeeze some things in there because as I was was doing research on Jay, I was finding some interesting nuggets. So uh, I was looking at, I found on YouTube, somebody that did a compilation where they cut together what this person thought was all of Jay Graydon's best guitar solos. So Mm. it's just, and I'm going to send you that link so you can put that in the show notes because people might find that interesting. Yeah. But as I was surveying the comments, somebody asked about why he did not include a track from Gino Vanelli. And I'm like, hmm, I did not know that Jay played with Gino Vanelli. But from 1976, this is Gino Vanelli, just to the Gemini album, and it's very much still the prog side of Gino. And uh, which is why I wasn't going to ask you if it's Yachty or not. But I did want to get your impression and I did want you to hear this solo from a song called A New Fix for 76. And I'm going to hit you with the solo right here. Got a little prog bent to it, but uh, <laughs> that's Jay. All right. Well, it almost floats my boat because it's so. <laughs> it's such a good solo. Wow, that almost belongs in our top ten. Our top ten is going to be like fifty uh, solos deep by the time we're done. I think we're going to have to revisit that, like the next ten or something like that. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, because I've discovered some new ones myself. Yeah. All right, that, that was cool. Yeah. All right. Well, do you want to try to steal my buried treasure for the second week in a row? I will. I will. I don't think I'm going to steal it. I don't think this is in yours, but. Uh, he, I was going through his 70s past to present. We talked to him a little bit about that. 
which is mostly demos of things that tracks that made it elsewhere. And one of the demos on there is from an album that ended up on an album that I really love. You've heard me talk about. You introduced me to that J.P. Morgan album, which was David Foster's first uh, full album project as a producer, but he leaned heavily on Jay. And I don't remember where I read this now, whether it was, I thought it was in the liner notes of the vinyl and I went to look at that and it was not there. So maybe it was back on Jay's website somewhere, but I want to play the solo section for JP Morgan's I fall in love every day. And he had this idea of harmonizing his solo against the synth solo that David Foster played. And they kind of were at odds as to whether they thought they could make it work because of just the way a synthesizer bends when you tune it and all that. Could they get the intonation right with a guitar against a synth? And here's what that sounds like. Yeah, so there you've got the uh, guitar in the left channel and the uh, synth in the right channel. And it is cool. There's these slow bends, and Jay's able to bend his guitar in tune with whatever David put down in the synth. So, oh, And it rips on both fronts. Man. Yeah. Ooh, cool. Very What's cool. What's your buried treasure? Um, it's after all by El Jero, since I can't <laughs> have <anymore>. that. <laughs> I'm going back to the uh, Manhattan Transfer thing. Okay. Uh, different album. This is the album before, which is called... Extensions. Extensions, yes. yes. And I guess I never knew that this existed, so it was buried for me. And that's okay. another version of Nothing You Can Do About It. elements of that one that I really like and obviously the airplay version they've each got their own high points uh but what did we hear at the uh, open of the episode here was that the page 99 version that was the page 99 version of so, it yes and I kind of took a little bit from each yes and did yes. my own take on it but uh yeah that's a such a killer song yep cool uh which brings me then to off the map okay and I am going to go this didn't really come up I don't think uh, in any of our hour and a half long conversation did it did we talk about his project with uh, randy goodrum called jar we did not uh we I, I had some notes and we just never got to it yeah so it's jar for capital j small a big r for j right. in randy and uh it's pretty good it's um let's see the, i'm looking at this album that came out in 2008 so it's off the map from a time right. standpoint but okay. it's on the map because of jay and randy but um it's pretty cool pretty interesting i'm just gonna hit you with the opening track and it's called cure kit and i uh suggest everyone go check out this album give it at least one spin and see what you think here's cure kit Yes, I was actually checking out that album uh, just the other day, and I found it to be um, 
I guess my my takeaway was it sounded like a, it could have been a solo album uh, from Donald Fagan, maybe. And uh, certainly some of the, the way Randy sings and it's so understated that I yeah. kind of get a little Michael Franks out of it, too. I was hearing Michael Franks as well. Yeah. So the album's called Scene 29. Pretty good. Yes. Pretty good stuff. All right. Um, off to you for the, the final lightning round element. What's your well, off the map? Close but no cigar. You tried to steal mine, but you didn't. Which I one? do have a track from that very same album from Jar, Scene 29, 2008. And uh, I just found this one solo again. I said the, the, the album has such a mellow, laid-back Michael Franks, almost very even keel. And then when Jay comes in with the solos, all of a sudden you're like, whoa, you really wake up. So I want to play the solo from a song off that same album called Make Somebody. <laughs> Another ripper. You know what? Something he said, and I can't remember exactly what he said. He made some sort of intimation that, yeah, back when I used to still have my chops. Do you remember him saying <laughs> something? Like, I'm yeah. like, oh, dude, you still have He says he chops. has to practice for a week to get like to 75% of what he used to be. Like, I wonder how long he practiced for that then. Woo. I know. Yeah. That's good. It, so that one had – here's the other thing that I wanted to bring up this record is because here we are in 2008, and it sonically maybe sounds a little more modern than, say, typical Yacht Rock from the era. Yes. But he still straight stays true to what makes for good production, what makes for good songwriting, what makes for good performances, whether it's solos or whatever. And there's still elements in there even in 2008, which I absolutely adore. It's in his DNA at this point. So. Yep. A little halftime shuffle on that tune. 2008. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. All right. Well, let's take a break only so that we can get back to it next week. You know how right. we, uh, <laughs> we used to, whenever there was a cliffhanger episode, we break Ahoy and Poloy up into two words, which you can't right. do a, a trilogy. Right. So, Oh, yeah. What are we going to do? I'm just going to say Ahoy. Ahoy. 